Hello everyone and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we heard from Pastor Brian as we continued our study of finding Jesus in the Old Testament. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris as he picks up where Pastor Brian left off last week. Now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. Kim for that. She did just a great job. So we're continuing our Sunday sermon or our Sunday series on Jesus and the Old Testament. And there's two main reasons why we're going back and showing that Jesus is everywhere throughout the scripture. The first main reason is this consistency. How many people have ever thought or you heard somebody say before the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament seem completely different? Anybody ever heard of that or at least thought of that before? Okay, so a couple of us. Well, that's a very common theme. A lot of people see the Old Testament, they say, man, that God is so much different than the God of the New Testament. Well, as we're looking at Jesus in the Old Testament, you're going to see that God is absolutely consistent. He was the same God in Genesis 1 as he is in Revelation. Now, why do you think consistency is so important? Why, why do you think God being consistent is so important? Validity, to see that he really is. What else? Let's say this. If God says you're going to be saved by faith today, and then tomorrow he changes his mind, what then happens to all of us? We're done. So consistency verifies God to be true and truth lives on forever. In other words, we can trust God because of who he is. Therefore, because he's consistent, we can trust his promises and we can be assured in his salvation. So when everybody's heartbroken in life, when we're going through the the tough times with a partner or we can't pay the bills or we've been fired by our job because we won't take the vaccine or whatever it is, we know we can go to God because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're going through the Old Testament to show God's absolute consistency and that our promises given to him back then still are valid today. Here's another beautiful reason, and we're going to look at it more today, why we're checking out Jesus and the Old Testament. And the reason for that is God's revelation. You see, when you go all the way back in the Bible, like Genesis 1, we know a little bit about God. God begins to show himself to us, but we don't see the full picture. And as time goes on, as redemptive history kind of unfolds, God pulls back the curtain of heaven. And he begins to show humanity what his plans and what his purposes and what his promises are for you and I. And so God begins to slowly reveal himself and then fully reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we want to see this morning that that revelation that God was showing through the person of the Lord Jesus. So Two big aspects of God. What do you think they are? If you can choose two words that would best summate God's nature and character, what would those two words be? What would your two words be? Loving. Aspect of who God is. He is a loving, gracious, benevolent, merciful God who loves his creation. That is a true aspect and element of God's nature. And there's one other huge aspect of God's nature. <laughs> there's so much. Yes, 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 yes. Holiness, and then that leads to jealousy. Righteousness, which leads to judgment. We see two aspects of God which seem to be a dichotomy of nature. You have one side where God is good and gracious and loving, and the other side where he's righteous and he's holy and he's a consuming fire, and the sinner who comes to him unforgiven will be burned alive. 
You have loving, gracious, come to me all who are willing. And you have the one in whom will stand on the throne and judge the living and the dead. You have this dichotomy. But up until 2,000 years ago, and that's not that long ago, up until 2,000 years ago, the majority of human beings really wondered this question. What is God really like? That's a legitimate question. And up until 2,000 years ago, it was really hard to answer that. What is God like and what pleases him and displeases him? And so this morning, we're going to look at the law, the law of Moses, and we're going to look at Jesus. And we're going to see how the two mesh together. And we're going to answer questions like, what is the law? Do we get rid of the law? As Christians, do we need to follow the law? And so on and so forth. But before we get to the law, let's look at God revealing to himself throughout human history. So if you have your Bible, start with me, and you're going to need them because there's no slides. So Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, and it seems like every sermon I've preached in the last month or two, we end up back here at Genesis. And so Genesis 2, and we're going to see God begin to reveal himself as, number one, a benevolent. Chapter 2, starting at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God created man and he said, very good. And then you see the goodness and benevolence of God. He created all of man's environment. And the Bible tells us it was pleasing to the eyes and everything was good for food. Meaning God could have created Adam and stuck him right in the, the Sahara Desert. He could have thrown him right in the middle of an ocean. He could have made him a little tick on the back of an animal there in the garden. But God being gracious made this beautiful utopia, heaven on earth, and he planted Adam right there to enjoy all of it. Here, God revealing himself as a gracious God. And then Genesis 2.15, his righteousness is then being revealed to Adam. Then the Lord God took man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, from every tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And here already, just a few pages into God's scripture, we're seeing a dichotomy of nature. You have this benevolent God who has given Adam all things. And he says, all of it is yours, except then the 0.01%. Adam, you can subdue the earth to fill the earth, it's all yours, but there's a rule, there's a catch. This little tree is off limits. And the day that you violate my law, you will die. Now, God had not talking about, spoken on death up until this very moment. It has just been life, 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 life. And now God says, here's ground rules. You break this, you violate my character, you break our relationship, and therefore you will be judged and you will die. The dichotomy of love and the dichotomy of God's holiness. Well, you know the story. What happened to Adam and what happened to Eve? Well, we're here today in search of the Savior and in fellowship with the Savior because they fell and we need to be saved. So you know the story. Adam, he bombed in the garden. Eve, she fell and stumbled. She was deceived. And so sin entered in. And so we see now God's holiness and righteousness on display. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. They heard the sound of the guard of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard a sound. I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And you, you know what happens then. What happens immediately after that? The blame game, right? Here's the blame game. Adam, it's Eve. Eve, it's the serpent. It's the blame game. Let's shove sin and pass the buck down the way, right? Let's not take accountability for our actions. In other words, let's make, let's blame the environment. Let's in, in blame somebody else. But God forbid we take accountability for our own actions. So God now then judges righteously. And you know the judgment to the man. Men, scientifically, their number one drive in life are things. That's why men tend to work harder and build companies and all the rest. Their drive in life is things. God said the curse. When you try to obtain things, it's going to be a lot harder. The ground is going to be cursed. You're going to have to toil with thorns and thistles, and you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. In other words, your desire to accumulate is going to be so much harder because of sin. God's righteous judgment. Upon the woman, science and data says that women... They don't, aren't driven by things. They're driven by, driven by people and relationships. And so to the woman, God says, childbearing, which is God's greatest gift to a woman, it's going to come with a cursing. It's going to be painful. And then God's great gift to woman, which is marriage, their desire for that relationship is going to be marred with sin. There's going to be friction there. So the desire of the woman, that judgment is going to be upon it. God's holiness and God's righteousness. And then Genesis chapter three, verse 14 and 15, I'll read it to you. The judgment on Satan. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So we have God's righteousness on display, judging the living and now the dead, because Adam and Eve, through them, death entered in. Here, at the bleakest part of all human history, outside of Christ on the cross, God shows his benevolence. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. What is God saying? God's saying is this, Satan, you've caused sin to enter in, and now depravity is going to spread. I will judge you. And how does God then judge the serpent? What is his plan? He says this, that the seed of the woman will come, and crush the serpent's head. But in the process of doing so, he also will be hurt. Now, women do not carry seed. Males carry the seed. So what is God saying? Way back in the garden, what is his plan for redemptive history immediately after the fall? Jesus is going to come, and he shall be born of the virgin, And we will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he will come and he will crush the serpent. But in the meantime, he too will be damaged in the process. This is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the good news. And it happens way back in the garden. This is God saying, you messed up and I am holy and I will judge you on that. However, hope is on the way. Hope is on the way. My redemption is coming. And so God tells us about the coming Lord. And then right after judgment, Genesis 3, verse 20 and 21. Now the man called his wife, named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin from Adam and his wife and clothed them. That's the very first mention in the Bible of death. And it was because of sin. And God killed the animal, shed the blood, and covered Adam and Eve. There's a, there's a word in the Bible that means to cover. Does anybody know what that word means? It's in pre- predominantly in the Old Testament. 
and it was what you would do with the animal sacrifices, and the word means to cover. The word is atone, to atone for something. What God is doing here in Genesis 3 is he slayed the animal. The, the blood was shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So what he's showing is man sinned, but God will himself atone. Remember Abraham out on Mount Moriah? Isaac is saying the, all the sacrifice stuff is here, but where's the actual sacrifice? And Abraham said what? God will provide himself a sacrifice. So God's redemptive plan in full swing. Then we get to the time of Noah, where the times of Noah were those godly times or ungodly times. It's terribly ungodly. God looked at the earth, Genesis 6, and it grieved his soul. It grieved him that he had made man. For the heart of man was desperately wicked. There was breeding and breeding of iniquity. And the entire earth was absolutely run down with sin. Now, God is holy and righteous and good. So he's not going to sit in heaven and just, you know, turn the other cheek. God was furious. And so what did God decide to do? Judgment, holiness, righteousness. God is slowly revealing to the world, I'm not to be messed with. And so God is going to bring the flood. But the Bible says Noah found favor with God. And so what did God do? He called Noah and he said, hey, Noah, come here. I need you to. (laughs) Yes, I need you to build a boat. And so, remember Monique, you said this about three months ago now. How long did it take to build that boat? Oh, come on. No, you said it right over there in that chair two, three months ago, and you had it correct. There you go. It took 120 years for Noah to build the boat. And what was he doing the whole time? The Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness. God could have just dropped the boat on Noah. And said, hey, get everybody and go on in there. But he wanted 120 years to go by or three generations to hear the gospel, to hear God's holiness, to hear man or to see man repent and come before God. There is God's holiness and righteousness on display. He's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And how many people went into the ark? Eight. He preached for 120 years, and he only had eight people in his congregation, and they were all family members. I mean, talk about being sad, right? God is showing his benevolence through Noah and his righteousness as it results in sin. And so you know the story, the water received. we see God's benevolence shine right through. Right after judgment, Genesis 8.20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Fascinating. Where does clean animals come from? The what? The, well, they, they come from the ark. Okay, where's the concept of clean and dirty animals come from? Remember two weeks ago, we talked about it. All the sacrifices, remember the burnt offering and the, the um, guilt offering and all those other offerings that we talked about two weeks ago. Those were clean animals. And, and here is Noah before the law or after the law. So again, you see the consistency of God. He told Noah the difference between clean animals and not and how to then offer burnt offerings. So Noah was obedient to that in verse 21. The Lord smelled the smoothing, soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Here is the, the righteousness and the goodness of God. He just brought judgment on the whole world, and then one man, one man, Noah, gives a sacrifice to God. And God blesses the entire human race. 
One man, one man said, God, I am sorry. Here's repentance. And God then blessed his entire species. Now for, here's a, should I sidetrack? Well, real quick. For global warming and those people who think that the world is coming to an end, God says this, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. I was thinking about doing a global warming sermon and really looking at that because we've exchanged uh, the Father God and his kingdom for Mother Earth and the animal kingdom. And so what you have is people walk their children with masks and leashes and they have kids in their strollers. And that's because of this idea that we're here for the earth. Man, the earth is here for man. And God says, as long as man is here, the entire world is not going to fall apart. Right now, there's 6% of civilization under what's called extinction, only six. In order for there to be some mass extinction, it has to be over 75%. Of the 6% in extinction, many of them will be able to come back. So this idea that the world's falling apart is is propaganda at, at its greatest. A thousand years ago, we, they have taken samples from South, the South Pole and they've realized that the ground a thousand years ago was hotter in the South Pole than it is today, which means that the climate gets hot and then it gets cold and then it gets hot and then it gets cold. It's called climate change because that's what climate does. We have weather people to tell us how the weather is going to be because climate changes. Just because it's changing doesn't mean the world's coming to an end. That's postmodernism, and we've been talking about that on Wednesday nights. So with that, you see God's holiness and righteousness in the garden, and you see it in Noah. And then who's the next big wig of Old Testament? Who's the next big dog? He's the top there. Who is it? Who said that? Honest Abe. We have Abraham. So God then begins to reveal himself to an even greater extent in Abraham. And so what did God promise Abraham? That's one. He promised them a people, the sweet peas. He prom, or I'm sorry, a nation, a place, and a people. And then there's one more, the promise. So Genesis chapter 12 and verse one. God now calls on this man for the first time called Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now listen to what God says. I will, now this is God promising, I will make a great nation and I will bless you. So number one, a nation. Number two, I will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse you and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Where's God's holiness in that? Where's God's command that says, be holy as I am holy? It's not there. It's not there at all. You see, the promise to Abraham is so unique in the fact that it reveals God's goodness and benevolence completely, but it doesn't show the other aspect of his being. It's a promise, it's an inheritance, and it comes with blessing. And it's God saying over and over, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it. And to Abraham, he doesn't require something of him. In other words, this is unconditional, meaning there's no conditions. There's no if then. There's no saying, God saying, if you do this, then you will receive this. God is saying, Abraham, because of, because of me choosing you, therefore, this is what I am going to do in your life. Flip over to Genesis 15 and I'll show you this. I don't, a lot of people don't know the context of this passage, but when you get it, you get it. And so God comes to Abraham again in Genesis 15, and he gives them the promise. You're going to have children innumerable, like the stars of the sky. Problem is, how old is Abraham in Genesis 15? He's 75. 
Yeah, so he's 75, and he doesn't know, you know, if God's going to follow through on his plan or not. But he's already past the age, and he's like, God, how's this going to be? And God says, trust me, Abe, just trust me. And then we go to Genesis 15, 6, and it says this, Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Here's the first time in the Bible we have justification by faith. That means that we are right before God, not on works, but on the basis of faith. God says, I'm going to do this, Abraham. Abraham says, okay, God, I trust you. God then says, hey, you and me, we're right. We're right on with one another. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and possess it. And he said, oh, Lord. God, how may, how may I know that I will possess this? In other words, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Show me, Lord, how I can actually trust you. And so he said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Does anybody remember what those animals are? Those are the clean, sacrificial animals. Where did Abraham get that? He didn't read it from the law of Moses because Moses comes 430 years later. Again, you see the consistency of God from cover to cover. He is immutable, which means he is steadfast. He does not change. And so Abraham, he gets these animals, uh, verse 15, and then verse 10. I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 10. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove them away. So Abraham takes these animals, slits them down the middle, and then he flops them over. And so you have a blood of a, a trail of blood right down the middle and you have carcasses, one on either side. It's an absolute bloody mess. And you're thinking to yourself, what in the world is God doing? So this is the context behind it. Back then, they didn't have the cloud. So you couldn't just save things, you know. Back then, they didn't have notary. So you couldn't go and, and have somebody be a middleman and stamp, you know, an approval process. They didn't have lawyers. They didn't have contracts. It was very difficult for two parties to make an agreement. And so what they did in the old days was this, a blood oath. Have you ever heard of that, a blood oath? Well, this is a blood oath. They would take the animals, they would slit them in two, and then one party would stand on one side, let's say uh, the other room, and here's the trail of blood and the two animals, and I stand right here. And we would walk through the blood, passing one another, and we would get to the other side. And what that symbolized is this. I will follow through with my word all the way into the end. And if I don't, may I end up like these animals. It was a blood oath to suggest and to tell what I am saying is true and I will follow through with my word. Now, both parties would do it and it would then be agreed upon. We see then Abraham falls asleep. He cuts the animals and he's 75 years old, you know. He just wants a little siesta. There's nothing wrong with that. And so he's getting a little old and tired and he just starts dropping off. And so we read... In Genesis 15, 17, and it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land, the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So what in the world is that whole thing? What God did is this. Abraham was asleep. He wakes up and it's dark and he sees the flame. This is God because God is spirit. Pass through the pieces. Abraham never passed through at all. What is being said here by God? That this covenant, this agreement in which we are coming into is going to be 100% me and require zero of you. It is 100% 
unconditional. And Abraham, it is for you and your blessed seed after you. And so for 400 years, God was good and benevolent and gracious, but God never changes. So the world kept going on in sin because God hadn't truly revealed his holiness, his righteousness, and his truth until what? The law. Then the law came. And Paul says this, the law or Abraham was the covenant of promise, the covenant of blessing, the covenant of goodness, and the law was the ministry of death. God revealed himself as good to Abraham. And then when the law came, God revealed himself to all of humanity as a righteous, holy God who will judge the living and the dead. Flip over to Galatians chapter 3. And we'll see this truth. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 17. What I am saying is this. That's actually the verse, not me. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So what Paul is saying is this, the law of God was then added to God, the Abrahamic covenant. So if God is building a cake of redemption, the bottom layer would be the Abrahamic covenant. And the next layer on top that God is adding is the law. And it was to reveal his holiness and to reveal our what? Unholiness. That was the purpose of the law. So going on in verse 19, thank you. Why the law then? If God didn't get rid of the Abrahamic covenant, if God just brought the law and added to it, what is the purpose of the law? Why did God do this? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, transgressions. What's a transgression? It, so all sin or all transgression is sin, but not all sin is a transgression. What's the difference between a sin and a transgression? Transgression is when you willingly sin against God. You see, you and I, we can go through our lives and sin against God and unbeknownst to us, we're doing it. God hasn't revealed it to us. Yeah, we're in sin. Yeah, God is going to judge us for that sin, but it is out of ignorance. There's a difference between ignorance and then willfully knowing God's heart, his mind, his purpose, what he loves and what he hates, and then flipping God off and saying, I'm going to live my own way. There's a massive difference in that. A transgression is flipping God off and saying, I'm just going to live how I want to live. The law came to reveal transgression. In other words, the law came to show how holy and good God was and how unholy and unrighteous you and I are. In verse 10 of Galatians 3, Paul writes, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices the law shall live by them. God says this, the law came, everybody's on the highway to hell. And here God's great wall of holiness is, and all of humanity is slamming headlong right into it and perishing because we are sinful and God isn't. 
However, before Abraham, we didn't know how sinful we were. We just thought God is good. God is love. You know, we're just going to go on with our life. No, no, no. He drops the law to drop knowledge on you and I that we are hopefully, wholly single. Holy single. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Whole, just holy, like big, full, (laughs) whatever. Moving on. So God shows his holiness. 2 Corinthians 3, 7. Paul says this, the law is the ministry of death in letters engraved in stone. Who here wants to serve in the ministry of death? Not me, but that's the law. Because the law is unholy or unrighteous? No. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law sin? So think about it. There on Mount Sinai, God gave the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Deca is ten, log is to, to speak. The Ten Commandments, God gave them his moral law to the world. When he gave the moral law, did life thrive? What happened on that day? On the very day God gave his law, what happened to the people of Israel? 3,000 people died because where the law is, there's death. Where the law is, there's death. Where the law is, there's an ability to violate it. If we go on the 15 and drive 150 miles an hour, we're violating the law because a law is in place. If we go 150 miles an hour on the Autobahn in Germany, we're not breaking the law. Same car, same speed, same freeway, don't matter. But there's one that has a law and one that doesn't. When the law came, we were then violated. We are then made scandalized. We are then made sure that we are unholy before a righteous God. So then the question is, if the law brings about death, is the law wrong? Paul says, may it never be. God forbid. No way, Josue. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So then, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good, the law, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. God forbid, rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. What he's saying is this, the law is good, God is good, you're not. The law is holy, you're unholy. The law is sinless, you are sinful. The law came and just revealed that you were already dead. That humanity was D-O-A, after the garden. We came out the womb dead on arrival, spiritually. Absolutely gone. So we have a major problem. We have a holy God, sinful humanity. The requirement to be in God's presence is absolute perfection. You violate the law in one way, you violate the law completely. Imagine being married to Mr. Perfect. It sounds good on paper, right? No, no bad breath. Their, their, their bedhead is absolutely perfect. When they cook, it's gourmet. When they go to their job, it, they, they hit top marks. Mr. Perfect is incredible and you're married to him. The problem is Mr. Perfect requires perfection. So when you have bad morning breath, Mr. Perfect will call you out. When you have bedhead and it's messed up, Mr. Perfect will condemn you. When you fall short, Mr. Perfect is going to throw stones at you. It's not that Mr. Perfect is evil. It's the fact that you are. And so the law reveals that we've come so, so short. So God reveals his benevolence and God reveals his holiness. The problem is we cannot meet it. So what does God do? Well, he begins to tell us. 
there's rumors in the distance. God is doing something great. From Genesis 3, the, the seed is coming. The, from Abraham, the promise is coming. From the law, the fulfillment of the law is coming. From the prophets, there will be one born of a virgin. From the prophets, he, uh, a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He shall be born in Bethlehem, Micah says. There will be one who goes before him, heralding, making way the path of the Lord. And then the babe in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. Hebrews says this, in previous times and in previous days, God spoke to us through the prophets. Abraham was a prophet saying God is doing something. Moses was a prophet saying God is doing something. The prophets were prophets saying God is doing something. And then Hebrews says, in these last days, God spoke to us through his son. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus in the garden, I'm benevolent and I'm righteous. In the, in the ark, I'm benevolent and I'm righteous. In Abraham, I'm benevolent. In the law, I'm righteous. And in Christ, it is the full fulfillment and revelation. Jesus says this, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the exact spitting image of God. He is the exact replication and representation of the infinite, invisible God. Look to Jesus and you will see God himself. And so God sends Christ to fulfill the law, something that you and I couldn't do. Now there's two ways in which Jesus fulfilled the law. What are they? Just think that through, huh? Okay, so he satisfies our punishment. That's one. What's the other thing he does by fulfilling the law through his life and ministry? He fulfills the requirements of the law. I'm still in my notes, man. <laughs> Two things Jesus does to satisfy the law. He meets the requirements of the law, which is what? Starts with a per and ends with fiction. Perfection. The law had to be perfect. And so Jesus came to fulfill the requirements of the law. But there's another problem. You and I had already sinned against God. So what about our sin towards God? It has to be punished. Well, Jesus came and also satisfied the death penalty for us as well. So what are the Ten Commandments? Really quickly, what is the moral law? They're found in Exodus chapter 20, verses uh, one through 17. And this is God's objective moral law. So why did he give the moral law? Number one was to do what? Reveal his holiness. Number two, to reveal our sin and iniquity. And here's the third one. So that there can be objective truth. In other words, there is an objective standard in which every human being is then to be pinned against. And why I say that and why it's so important is if you've been following our Wednesday night study, you know this. Postmodernism is the current American thought, philosophical thinking of our time. And what postmodernism says is there is no absolute truth. One cannot know. Therefore, there's no one right or wrong way of living. Now, what breeds out of postmodernism is a, is a way of living, a philosophy called moral relativism. Relativism. There we go. And it's exactly what it says. Because there's no absolute truth, because we cannot know it, therefore, morality is relative. Relative on what? This is what our culture says. Number one, your experience. Number two, your society in which you've grown up. Number three, your personal feelings. This is how you get to govern and determine your morality. How you feel, what you want to do, and what your culture says is right or isn't right. That determines how you get to live out your world ethic, which is false. That is why the majority of people on earth will end up in hell. 
because they've been deceived and they worship and serve themselves rather than the creator God. So God, through the law, gives objective truth. Number one, what's the first command? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse three, what's commandment number one? You shall have no other gods before me. Christianity is monotheistic. There is only one true God. And God says you are to worship me. If you worship any other form of God outside of me, you are then by default worshiping a lie. And the wages of that lie will ultimately lead to death because there's only one road that leads to God, the author of truth. And Jesus says, I am that truth. And so here, when you say, I will worship no other gods before you, what you're saying is, I choose you, God, and no one else. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourselves an, an idol or any of the likeness in, of what is in heaven or on the earth, beneath, or in the water, under the earth, you shall worship, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations, on those who hate me. I love to flesh that out, but disobedience equals hate towards God. So if you're disobedient and you're living a sinful life, what you're saying is, I hate you, God. But I call myself a Christian, but really I hate you. That is what disobedience is. It's saying to God, I hate you. That's why in Romans 1, those who deny God, what is the fruit of it? They will be haters of God. It's a natural place, a natural transition. But God goes on and says, but showing loving kindness, and here's the benevolence, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commands. Commandment two, no graven images. Why? Because God is too mighty. God is too great. How can all of his splendor be contained in a statue? What you're doing is you're taking the glory of God and diminishing it. And God says, you are to never diminish my glory. Number three, what is it? Don't take the Lord's name in. That's right. So what does that mean? It can mean saying Jesus Christ when you stub your toe. It can mean that. But what it really means is blaspheming the Lord through actions and attitudes. When you take the Lord's name in vain, you are speaking on his behalf in error, either for good or bad, but you're you're misrepresenting him in the wrong way. You're dishonoring his name and you're bringing his glory down. And then the fourth is the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Interesting, the first three is reflecting of God's holy nature. And on on the fourth commandment, he says, now I want you to stop, rest, and reflect on my glory. I want you to know that I'm the monotheistic God who has created all things, whose name is great, who cannot be confined by any statue or any temple or any place, whose name goes out forever. And I want you to stop and reflect on that glory. And then verses five or commandments five through 10 is the humanity aspect, the righteousness, how you deal with one another. So what are they? Honor your father and mother. What else? Six. Yep. Seven is the commit adultery. Yep. Yeah. Stop looking. They're going off memory here. And number nine, which is, uh, You shall not bear false witness. And then number 10 is what? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. And if you honor those things, you will be honoring your neighbor and loving your neighbor. So God reveals himself as completely holy. Now we've fallen way short of his objective standard. So what does God do? He sends Jesus Christ. Christ came and he fulfilled the law perfectly. He met the standards by never sinning. He met every commandment of God, and we then in him have completely fulfilled it. How so? Well, if I have faith in Christ and he met the standard, then I'm with Jesus. And so where he goes, I go too. So how did God meet the standard? By require or satisfying the need of perfection. So if I love God, I will love Jesus. Why? Because commandment number one says what? You shall not what? Have any 
other gods before me. You shall worship me alone. So Jesus comes and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, if you want to come to God, come through me. And if you have me, you will have the Father. So how do we fulfill commandment number one? By worshiping no other God except for God. We worship Jesus. We love God through loving Jesus. And when you love Jesus, you will fulfill commandment number one. Commandment number two, no false images. If you worship a stone or a rock or a a hill or whatever, you are violating the second commandment. But if you love God, through loving Christ, you will see that you will worship him alone. How so? Colossians 1 and verse 15 says this truth. Colossians 1 and verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things are held together. So God says, don't worship any graven image. But if you want to meet the requirement, worship the image of Christ. In doing that, you have now taken all of God's splendor and all his glory that cannot be contained in a temple or in a statue and has been placed in the incarnate Christ. So when we worship the image of Jesus, we are worshiping the totality of God himself. So in loving Jesus, we are meeting the requirements of the law. What about three? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. What is another word for vain? Curse or blaspheme. Jesus came and he says, there's only one sin that will never be forgiven. And what is it? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is to say this, the Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We say to the Holy Spirit's work and ministry, get away from me. I don't want Jesus. I don't want anything to do with you. Oh, Jesus came to die for my sins, hogwash. And you know, you just shun it. That's blasphemy of the Spirit. You're rejecting the Spirit by rejecting Christ. So by not taking the Lord's name in vain, how do we then elevate and worship and glorify the name of God? Every time we pray, what, whose name do we pray in? In Jesus' name. If you hold fast to the name of Christ, you will never take God's name in vain. Here's one more because I know we're running uh, later in time. Number four, the Sabbath. Now, this is an interesting one because do Christians hold the Sabbath? Well, yes and no. We are not to hold a actual Sabbath like on a Saturday where we do no rest and we are to reflect on God. We don't need to do that. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, he says this, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning Sabbath was made for man, not for God. God worked six days and then what did he do on the seventh? Did God need to rest? Was he tired? Was he, did he even break a sweat? He just said, let it be. And there it was. He wasn't tired at all. The Sabbath was made for us. And so Christ came, fulfilled the law, and now our rest and our reflection of the holy God is in whom? Jesus Christ. And you can see as we go through the commandments, Christ fulfilled every one. And so in faith, We have satisfied God's standard and we have the promise of Abraham, which is the inheritance and the blessing and the goodness of all that God has. But what is the second condition we have to meet? God isn't just going to say, well, come on, boys and girls. I know you're all sinners, but let me just look the other way. Come on into heaven. We have to meet the standard and then what? What's the, what, what happens if you fail to meet the law standard? Penalty. So we, the satisfaction, the requirements of the law have been met, but the penalty hasn't been met unless you die for your sin. So what did Christ do? 
He died for our sins. Romans chapter three and verse 19. Now from Romans 8, 1, 18 through Romans 3, 18, three chapters, God is saying to humanity, you suck. Seriously. Chapter one, the world sucks. Chapter two, the Jews and their so-called holiness sucks. And chapter three, the moralist, those who think, you know, I'm going to be holier than thou and try to get to heaven on my own, you suck too. And so God has just diatribed the entire humanity. He's literally ripped us a new one. And he says, you guys can't even stand before me. And then we read this, verse 19, Romans 3. Now we, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now verse 25 and 26. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That means a satisfaction of God's wrath. God placed Jesus in a place where he can satisfy his wrath. Where was that? In his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. He passed over the sins of negligence before the time of the law, before we really knew what God wanted. God said, okay, I will just look the other way for a season, but... I say of his righteousness at this present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of those who have faith. So what does Romans say? That God put Jesus on display to show his righteousness by killing him. Was God sad when Jesus was on the cross and the wrath of God was being poured upon him? Isaiah chapter 53 says, and it pleased God to crush him. It pleased God to crush his son publicly for all the world to see so that God would know that he is both holy and gracious. And then we see, and we'll close with this one verse. I believe it's Colossians 3, 7 or I'm sorry, Galatians 3, 7. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So God took the penalty, placed it on Christ. Christ took our curse from failing the law and crushed Jesus, put our iniquity on him and then killed him and then rose him up from the dead so that those who have faith in Christ we have the fulfillment of the law. We satisfied the requirement and we also have relationship and benevolence with the gracious God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can get into your word and just study your truth and just see Jesus everywhere and see the consistency of God, see the holiness of God, see the righteousness of God and see really the consistency and full revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. The law is fulfilled in him and the curse has been done away 
so that we can be right with our maker. And so, Father, your plan is so grand and so awesome and that you are in the details, Lord. And so I just pray for our own lives and in our own struggles. As we struggle with sin, as we struggle with the feeling of inadequacy and condemnation, as we struggle with the trials of life, would we know, God, that you are consistent and that you are loving and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And that is why your word is so valuable because we bank everything upon truth. Father, we love and thank you. Thank you for the law, but most importantly, thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.